You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Realize that it is attainable. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of the messages or the gift I've been able to give the amateur community in our discipline. I'm just couldn't be happier because, and I've told so many people, if you want it badly enough, it is absolutely possible. You absolutely can can ride at Kentucky. You just, you're going to have to give some things up. Yeah. And it is possible. And even if you don't have, you think you have enough money, you can still make it happen. You have to, you have to know how to make the lifestyle of riding at a high level work for your lifestyle with your day job. And I think that a lot of people have looked at this and realize that this is possible for them too. And so I'm hoping that that is the case. And I'm I'm positive. I have told so many people, I've just given them a pat on the back and said, I am positive that if you want this, that you can make it happen for you. And if you get a chance to ride at a five star, you get a chance to ride at Kentucky, it will be a week that you will relive over and over and over again, uh, just with um, incredible, you know, uh, feeling of, I think the feeling of accomplishment is the most incredible thing that I took away from that. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Julia Murphy, and this week's episode is with veterinarian and top-level eventer Kevin Keene. Keene has successfully combined work and play. As a vet and avid equestrian, Keene has the best of both worlds. In his career, he cares for horses at his practice, sports medicine associates, and in his personal life, he's a competitive eventer and horse lover. He is the all-around horse person, surrounded by the thing he loves most at all times. Keen grew up on a farm in Illinois where he quickly became the one who loved to take care of the horses and other animals. That passion continued through his youth and high school years, and he worked hard through college to make it to vet school. After his undergraduate, Keen was accepted to and attended vet school at the University of Illinois. Throughout those years while he was in school, he filled his summers and holidays with riding as much as he could and educating himself on the sport. Years later, international eventer Philip Dutton moved to the United States and Keen became his vet and very good friend. Dutton suggested that Keen pick up eventing because he thought the sport would be manageable with his busy life as a vet, and the rest was history. Not only is Keen a successful and tenured vet, he has also competed up to the five-star level and has conquered top-level events such as the Kentucky Three-Day. During our conversation, Keen goes into depth about his history as both a vet and a rider and discusses how he manages to balance his career and his life as an equestrian. He also offers great tips for amateurs who are juggling the same work-life balance that he's experienced. Before we dive into the podcast with Keen, I'd like to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Practical Horsemen On Demand, and share their message. At Practical Horseman On Demand, you can enjoy hundreds of how-to videos and get insider access to exclusive interviews and lectures, slow-motion demonstrations, and step-by-step tutorials taught by top-level pros in the hunter, jumper, equitation, and eventing disciplines. New content is always rolling out, 
so there's always fresh new videos available on the topics important to you. Join now at practicalhorsemanondemand.com and start streaming from any smart device. Now, enjoy the episode with Keen. This is a really, really fun um, experience to be talking to you because not only are you a rider, but you're also a vet in the industry. So we kind of get the best of both worlds with you, get to hear about the riding and about your profession. So I can only guess that the thing that brought those two together is obviously horses and your love for them. So first question is, how did you get interested in horses at the beginning? Okay, so I... I was one of those very fortunate children in that I had extremely generous parents that pretty much let us have all the animals that we wanted. We lived on, I call it a, a gentleman's farm, Julia. It was, my father did not make his living as a farmer, but we had a lot of farm animals, mostly horses. And I have quite a lot of siblings. I have seven sisters and I have two brothers. And my father made sure that all of us had a horse. So we had wow. a lot of horses and they changed uh, the numbers of them and the names of them changed, you know, every couple of years because he was always, you know, acquiring more of them. And as I went on and I was in 4-H, uh, which I enjoyed mm-hmm. tremendously, you know, having farm animals. I lived in the Midwest, I lived in northern Illinois on the Wisconsin border. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in farm country. And as I got a little bit older by that, I mean, kind of early teenagers, I became the person in the family that more or less specialized in wanting to take care of the horses. I just, I had always been crazy about animals and like I say, my parents, uh, they were saints basically. <laughs> they, you know, I had every kind of animal you could imagine. You know, I, I had, uh, you know, a number of horses. I had, you know, pigs and sheep and I had beef cattle and I had, you know, chickens and guinea pigs and, uh, it, you know, um, you know, uh, white mice and hamsters. Mm-hmm. I, I just had everything. And uh, they let me have all that, uh, which was pretty uh, uh, great way to grow up. And then, as I was in school, and you know, knowing I needed to make a a, a career choice of some sort, mm-hmm. I, I and we had a wonderful vet when I was uh, a child who'd come out. He'd do the castrations on the young colts and this type of thing. And he's just a wonderful man. His name was Hank Schlachter, and I would always you know, I'd wait around all day for him to come. You know, we didn't have cell phones. You know, that was about 50 years before cell phones. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the vet would tell you when you called their office that they would either come morning or afternoon. So you just would wait for them. And I was just always excited to wait for Dr. Schlafter to come, and I'd work with him. He was, a, you know, an influence on me, as was another vet I worked for later, Gordon Iverson. And I was always wanting to take care of animals. You know, if I find a bird with a fractured wing or something I would you know nurse it back to health and so forth so I, I kind of had that that upbringing background and my father just loved horses and so he was always acquiring new ones and I became the person in the family that would take care of them which was before I went to school you know catching a school bus and then when I came home and my siblings helped me but then as they got older you know my sisters developed more interest in you know being cheerleaders and, and this type of thing at school, and so I kind of took on the, you know, uh, my shoulders the responsibility of caring for all the animals, and then uh, it, it it just grew from there. So that's that's how I was introduced to horses, and then the the uh, uh, you know joining a veterinary medicine was what I always wanted to do, and I was fortunate enough that it uh, it worked out for me. The schooling. And when did you decide, um, like th- in your studies, that you wanted to be a vet? 
Well, I had wanted to when I was in high school. I wanted to from when I was very young. And then as I was in high school and then getting close to having to make a decision to go to college, and that was in the early 70s. And so that was a time when it was extremely competitive to get into veterinary school, medical school, and any of the professional colleges. And so I knew that you had to be a very good student. And I, I really buckled down in my last couple of years of high school and applied myself and then once I did, uh, scholastics became very easy, and I was fortunate in that I was one of those people that I was what I'd call a good test taker. Right. I think sometimes that one of my colleagues in the class maybe knew some of the information a little bit better, but I was very good at taking exams, and so I uh, tended to score well, and I I had a, uh, you know, I, I was able to be an A student quite, um, you know, uh, proficiently, mm-hmm. and so basically I went to school as an undergraduate and I, you know, was, was basically was a straight A student. Mm-hmm. And so when I applied to vet school, uh, which I did when I was a, uh, uh, a junior in, in college. So I was on, I had gone to college about two and a half years and I applied to vet school and I was just, it was just one of the best moments of my life to get that phone call and find out that I had been accepted because, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of applications for, only about 80 spaces. Yeah. And so I, I was uh, thrilled to get that call that I had been accepted. And then once I went to vet school, so I, I started vet school then in, you know, kind of the, the mid seventies, I graduated in 79 and from the university of Illinois, because I was an Illinois resident mm-hmm. at the time I went to vet school, it was a requirement that you go to the vet school in the state in which you were a resident. That, oh. that has changed now. You can pretty much go like I could apply now to Cornell or UC right. Davis or, you know, Florida, wherever. But back then you had to go to the vet school in the state in which you resided. And that, okay. There were reasons for that, that the, um, the state basically subsidized a large part of your education because they wanted to keep veterinarians right. in their state because yeah. of the large number of farm animals in Iowa, Indiana, you know, the Midwestern states, yeah. you know, Illinois and so forth. So it actually was not that expensive for me to go to vet school. Uh, you know, that's changed tremendously. Mm-hmm. Some of these young doctors, I realize, have, you know, enormous debt when they get out of school. But I was fortunate that that was not the case. And uh, so I I started vet school in about the, the mid-70s. Uh, and it actually, as long as you paid attention and went to class every day and, uh, you know, did your work, it, it actually is very straightforward. It was not, it was not you know, there, there were small challenges, but it was uh, it was just a great experience. Yeah. And were you riding all throughout your studies as well? So I, I had had uh, a lot of horses that my father supplied me with prior to going to a vet school. And then what I would do while I was doing my academics was I would only ride during the summertime and then on holidays. I did not ride during the week uh, and, or take a horse to school with me. Right. I, I basically was working a couple of jobs while I was in school. I mm-hmm was a waiter. And mm-hmm. then I worked in a research laboratory. And so I had a job after class every day. And then on the weekends, I worked in this research laboratory, which turned out to be great because it essentially paid for a lot of my education while I was while I was doing it, which really helped. And I would only ride during the off season from school. I did that purposely so that I would not be distracted and that I could devote my entire time to my academics. And I wanted to excel in school. And so I uh, I divided my, my time, you know, there was the fun time and then there was the work time and school was the work time. <laughs> yeah. 
And um, when in your riding career did you decide that you wanted to go to the top of the sport? And I mean, you competed at the five star level, correct? Like you've you've done yes. it all. Yes. So when did you decide that you wanted to compete at that top level? Okay, so I I had always ridden horses and, and and much of what I did because we did not have pony club where I grew up. We were a little bit too rural in our, my father owned a, a couple of farms. Uh, he would, um, he's always trying to acquire more acreage. So you know, as I got older, he got more land and we moved farther from the city, which I'm meaning the city of Chicago. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in a rural area, but then it became more and more rural as I got in my late teens. And basically I rode, but a lot of it was without, it was mostly without instruction. So up until I had been maybe about a kind of mid to late teenager, I'd only had three riding lessons in my life. So I mostly did it on my own. Uh And I was always a big reader. And I read all of the books that were available about, uh, you know, the great international jumpers and so forth. And then, of course, George Morris started producing uh, books, which I, you know, in uh, Gordon Wright's book, uh, Learn to Ride, Hunt and Show. I acquired Mm -hmm. all these and I read them multiple times and I learned to ride a lot from watching people uh, and and reading and just copying who were success people that were successful. And I worked as a groom when I was probably about 16, 17 uh, is when I started. And I would go to the A horse shows. I would just, I was glued to watching those riders in the warm up in the ring. And so I did a lot by watching and copying. And then I went to school. Then kind of fast forward, in 1991, Philip Dutton moved to the United States, and um, I started being his vet immediately as soon as he arrived in Chester County, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and then traveling with him internationally uh, to the big events. He had Troop of Girdwood at the time, and uh, Philip and I became fast friends, and then he had made the suggestion that he said, look, you know, I know it's hard as a vet because you don't have time, but with eventing, he said, it's usually one or two days in the weekend. I think you could do it. And I said, Oh, I don't know if I could, I can ride. I don't think I have time, but he encouraged me to do so. And then when I did, I realized it was completely possible. So I started Mm. at the novice level. I did three novices. Then I did a couple of trainings and then I went to Sarah. So I only did about five lower level events. And then (laughs) I I went, (laughs) I went to a two star. I did my first one on a horse I borrowed who had not evented before. And uh, we came fifth in our first uh, long format three-day event. And so that kind of gave me, I was then bitten by the eventing bug. You know, we had, <laughs> we had phases A, B, C, and D. And that was, you know, it was very exciting to do that steeplechase and so forth. And I really enjoyed it. And I also enjoyed meshing the physiology of what you needed to know about the horse regarding yeah you know, heart rate, uh, you know, ambient temperatures affecting uh, cooling of the horse and, and, you know, in the vet box prior to phase D. And I really enjoyed the whole, uh, you know, journey of learning how to make a horse fit and, and using my knowledge as a vet to assist me in whatever way I could. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, learn, learning to ride. And so that was a, a horse a friend of mine uh, had loaned me. Uh, and then I did that, and then I got a horse off the racetrack after that that um, was had some issues. I did a surgery on it, and it turned out to be successful. And I was able to take the horse uh, on through, yeah, do quite a lot of events with them, and, and quite successfully. And so that turned into a little bit of a 
kind, kind of my, my MO was that I, I'd find a horse usually off the racetrack and mm-hmm. educate it and get it going. And this went on for probably about seven or eight years. Uh, and then I would go to uh, Kentucky with Philip every year as his veterinarian. And, of course, along the way, I started to acquire more and more eventing clients. And we came home from Kentucky one year. And I'll never forget. It. So this is the answer to your question. I It's very exciting to go to Kentucky, which we call Rolex at the time. We yep. call Land Rover now, but mm-hmm. we often just call it Kentucky. And I, Philip was sitting on a horse, and I went to give him a report on one of my exams. And I looked at him. I said, you know, Phil, just once in my life, I would like to ride around. I would really like to ride around a five-star. <laughs> and that was in 2010. Uh-huh. That's when that, that was. That was that moment in 2010. And I don't know how well you know Philip, but he's a he's a he's a man of few words. But yeah, I met him a few clear. times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know he was on the horse. He looked at me. He goes, he goes, okay. Well, we need to go find your horse then. And it was that simple. <laughs> he made a couple of phone calls, and next thing you know, I was on a plane to England, where I met my now very good friend Carol G, who owns Fernhill Sport Horses, mm-hmm. and she had found a horse that she said she thought an amateur would be able to ride, and that they'd be able to ride it in. At the time, we called it three-star, but of course, yeah. we now call that four-star. And that was actually yeah. my my goal thing. Okay, let me get that far, and then we'll see how it goes. And maybe if I'm very fortunate, I could ride you know, at Kentucky. I said, I want to go around that Kentucky just once in my life. Yeah. And I went to England, and the horse that she had picked out for me turned out to not be the one I liked. Uh, there was another one there that uh, I liked much more. And that turned out to be the horse they rode at Kentucky that we called, we called him Butterfly because that was his real name. Uh, and his FEI name was Fernhill Flutter. Mm-hmm. But he had been named as a full Butterfly Orchid. And so that was his, his real name. Okay. So everybody called him Butterfly. Uh, you know, all of my uh, you know uh, friends eventing with me and so forth and everyone in the barn. And so I purchased him from Carol, not knowing what level uh, you know he, w- he would attain. And it just kept progressing year by year. So I bought him in about June 1st of 2010. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the year, I had gone intermediate with him. And he was going reasonably well, always good on the cross country and the jumping part. The dressage is, uh, is for many people, it was my challenge, <laughs> especially being a guy, you know, like we tend to, we don't have as much sensitivity and finesse as <laughs> a lot of women riders who, you know, who, you know, ride with so much feel. Men tend to use sometimes their strength too much. And so I, I just kept working at it. And then, uh, we went on and did that. And then by 2014, I, I, well, actually in 2012, I had him up to advanced all year and I went to Bromont and I was uh, third in the four star in Bromont. Mm-hmm. And that was a great thrill. So I had two, uh, four star finishes in the top three that year with him. And then, uh, I ended up getting to Kentucky in 2014 where we were fortunate enough to finish in the top half of the field. Uh, and it was just an enormous, enormous thrill. And anyone who's asked me about it, I told them if there's any way you can ever do it, it will be one of the most rewarding and unforgettable experiences of your life. It's just a, a week I re- relive all the time. It was just you know, it's magical, really. What was it like after having dreamt about it for so many years to go out and run on cross country at Kentucky to actually be out there? What was that like? <laughs> well, it, it, it's a it's a moment I remember very vividly in that you don't really, because you haven't done it, 
you don't know what feeling you're going to have. And I was very calm. I was walking to the Starbucks because I like a lot of people, you know, I get real butterflies in my stomach in the warm up. And then once Mm -hmm. I get to the Starbucks, I go absolutely completely calm and very, very uh, clear headed. And I take off from the Starbucks and I jump fence one and I'm on my way to fence two. And I thought, wow, these are, these are, Philip calls them Rolex proportions because those are some <laughs> big tables and fences. Yeah. I'm on my way to fence two. And I think I probably, you know, muttered this out loud to myself. I said, Oh my gosh, you are on course at Rolex. And <laughs> it just at that moment, I, and I just said to myself, just ride your horse to the best of your ability mm-hmm. and try to be as competitive as you can. And, you know, just uh, do what is right for your horse. And that's what I did for the next, you know, 10 and a half minutes. And it was just su- such an incredible experience. He, he just went so fantastically. And, uh, you know, most people that do their first five star now, that's not if you're Mark Dodd or, you know, Philip or Andrew Nicholson or, you know, these, you know, uh, you know, mega heroes in our sport, but many people don't finish their first five star. So to yeah. have completed for him to have gone so well, was just an enormous, uh, uh, you know, I, I was just so proud of him. And just, it's just a great, thrilled to have achieved that and uh, we were able to complete the you know we showed jump the next day he went well and so it was really really exciting that's really incredible i mean both exhilarating and surreal that's just incredible and um (laughs) so i'm wondering too with your education and experience as a vet how does that incorporate into your life as a rider well basically i I, I always tell people I've been one of these incredibly lucky people throughout my life so many times. I do own my own practice, which is called Sports Medicine Associates. And my younger colleagues are now, as we're speaking, where they're going to take over the administration of the practice and so forth, which is giving me a bit of extra time. But because I owned the practice, it gave me a little bit of leeway for finding time to ride. And so trying to mesh your life as a working veterinarian, and you know, yeah. most veterinarians, that we do work a lot of extra hours a week. I mean, all horse people are are working hard, but because I don't make my schedule, my, my patients make my schedule. So if you're on a horse and you get called away, you have to stop Mm -hmm. that moment and and leave. So I eventually worked it out with my really generous coworkers, uh, veterinarians in the practice that I could have, you know, kind of an hour and a half a day to devote to my riding. And so that's what I would do. And I would, uh, I get up in the morning and I would do some calls. And then what I do is schedule my ride in as a case. So let's say if I did a case at eight and then nine thirty, and then, you know, the next one is 11, I would schedule my ride. Let's say at 11, I was making these numbers up 11 and then be done by 1230 and then go back to work till the end of the day. And I still do something like that now. And then I go back to the barn at the end of the day, I hang my tack and everything up. I don't have time to clean it. Then I go back to the barn at the end of the day and I clean all my tack and uh, and my uh, saddle pads and everything like that and get everything ready for the following day at the end of the day. And that might be at 7 p.m. It might be at 9 p.m. Uh, and so it's uh, it's a long day, but it's a day you look forward to every, every time you get up. Yeah, that does sound like a long day. I mean, like you said, vets are known to have crazy, crazy schedules. So it's really amazing that you have worked out such a system that allows you to do both of the things that you love every day. Well, young, many young veterinarians who have come to the practice, and some of them were externs, some were interns, and they'd ride on calls with me. And there's many vets who are, they're very, uh, 
you know, advanced in the profession as sports medicine vets. They've been with our practices, young vets or, or students, and, you know, they've all gone on to great success. They'd always say to me, you know, they always say, you know, we want to practice just like yours. And I always say to them, <laughs> jokingly, of course, I say, well, it happened absolutely, actually very naturally. I didn't even have to work at it. And they say, really? I said, no. That, that is, I, I, I was actually <laughs> just joking. It took a lot of, you know, forethought and and, and training myself and training, you know, my colleagues and so forth to allow me the time to do it. But what I would do was always wanting to put my share of work into the practice. People say, oh, you don't take a day off because I do work on Saturdays and Sundays still. Now I do, which is not a problem. I, I actually have to say after all these years, I still absolutely love my job, which I feel so, you know, blessed that yeah, I can say that fortunate. because some people I think probably don't like their job, but I love my job. So what I would do is I would work on Saturdays, more or less a full day, and then Sunday's kind of a half day, about, you know, about five hours. And I would do that to make up for the time during the week that I took to ride my horse. So if I took an hour and a half on Monday to Friday, I would make up that time by doing cases on Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I was putting my you know, shoulder to the grindstone for everyone in the whole practice. And so it was always equitable. And I think that that's the generosity of my coworkers, but then also the fact that I, I always tried to make sure I did my share. That is, I think, what made it successful. And then as far as how your um, education goes into the care of like your own horses and how you think um, I'm trying to get a, a an understanding of how you think as a vet and a rider about your horses and the way yes, that you so do things. That's, that's a really good question, Julia. Basically, what you have to do when, let's say, if I look down at a horse of mine, I've, you know, I've had a, I've had a horse that was an advanced horse that developed a tendon injury at one point in his career. What I do when I look at a horse, if it belongs to a client, belongs to me, is at that moment, I'm not a rider. I'm mm. a doctor. I'm a mm. veterinarian. And I think absolutely with clarity and uh, objectively and subjectively looking at the case to do my absolute best to diagnose the case and make a treatment plan for the horse. So whether it belongs to a, a, a client or if it belongs to me, even though I'm the doctor on the case, right. I can look at my own horse and I'll never forget you know, looking down at this, I said, wow, that there's this, I'd taken a horse for a gallop very early in the morning. It was, you know, it's just getting, getting light. And uh, this is the case I'm referring to. And it had been some rain that week. And I was on a fairly fast gallop at some of the beautiful hills of Chester County near uh, the Dutton, uh, Phil Phoebe Dutton's yep. farm, which is where I keep my horses. And he slipped a little bit in the gallop. This was like a very mild misstep. But then a few hours later, he had a little bit of enlargement in his leg. And you know, obviously that, uh, He'd gotten a small tendon injury. It wasn't major, but when I took that ultrasound probe and ran it over his leg, you know, you can't become emotional. Everything yeah. has to be uh, clear, and you have to be a scientist and a doctor at the moment. And I said, okay, this horse has a tendon injury. He's going you know, to be out for some months. And so when you're the veterinarian, you are wearing that hat. When you're the rider, you're wearing that hat. Now, I... As you probably know, I wear quite a lot of hats in this discipline. You know, I, I've been mm-hmm. an owner for a Philip Dutton. I currently own for Olivia Dutton, um, mm-hmm. Philip and Evie's daughter. And uh, basically, I I could put one hat on, put the other, uh, set it down, and then put another one on, and I can 
do, I can change those hats pretty quickly. You know, so I've been, I'm an owner, I compete, and uh, I wear the veterinary hat. I'll never forget being at Kentucky. I was competing at Kentucky, and there was a horse that belonged to a, a friend and client of mine that sustained quite a serious injury on the cross country. And it needed a number of hours of diagnostic work following the cross country while we were at Kentucky that year. And I had had my own horse. He had completed the event and I had iced him and he has wrapped it. I had, of course, a wonderful groom helping me so they could take the reins on that. And, you know, I, I put down my competitor hat for yeah. several hours. I went and I got my diagnostic bag and I, I was able to work it there. Because I am an FBI veterinarian, uh, and everyone in my practice is, uh, I'm able to work at these events. And so you, you have to basically with with no emotion whatsoever you have to be able to use your scientific brain to you know d- decipher what's wrong with the horse use your diagnostics and and so i've always been able to switch you know between those roles mm-hmm. quickly and, and and you know and, and it's very clear to me and uh going back to your riding a little bit now so you are keeping up with this amazing schedule that you've worked out for yourself and you're riding you know every Every day, I, oh, I would yes, assume oh, every yes, every, day. every day. Yes. Uh, what horse are you riding at the moment? Well, I have I have three of them that I'm riding. I'm actually in Wellington, Florida, while we're having this interview. Uh, Very nice. I'm, I'm part owner of with the you know, the Duttons and several other wonderful close uh-huh. friends that we've gone together to purchase a farm down here. Uh, you, you know, it's it's a, a a great facility for us to have a larger piece of property down here in South Florida. We can do some fitness work and, 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 you know, have all of our horses here and we have access to the phenomenal show facilities here, mm-hmm. uh, which is great, both dressage and show jumping. Yeah. And so, um, basically I have sports field candy, the horse that I've had now for six years, who is, uh, my incredible equine partner who is turned is really turned out to be the horse of a lifetime. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, purchased him when he was sent to Philip uh, to sell from David and Patricia Voss. And basically I ended up acquiring him and I purchased him in 2016, Mm -hmm. September of 2016. And so I still have him. And I have said to many people, I I generally sell my horses after I've progressed and gone up the levels with them because I've pretty much done with them what I think they're able to do. And then I pass them on to someone as a young rider, someone else. And, uh, I enjoy educating horses, so I allow them to go to a new home, and then I, I, I get another young horse, and I've done that continuously for years. But I said to this this horse, Sports Field Candy, we call him Candy, uh, he is not on the sale list. I'm going to keep <laughs> him, and when I have a, a nice little farm in Pennsylvania, and when I uh, when he is ready to be retired, he's going to go to my farm, and he's going to stay there. So I will never get rid of Candy. And uh, he's just been the kindest and most generous horse, and he's the horse that's able to win the um, CCI on last uh, uh, last fall mm-hmm. um, there in Tryon. Yeah. And then I have a couple of young horses. I have one. He's actually I bought him in a show jumping barn from a friend of mine in New York, and he's only six years old. So he's just you know he's, I'm having him here in um, in South Florida show jumping him, and that's going very well. I've done one combined test with him. I did not do the cross country because I, I've actually never cross country schooled him. So I just did the okay. dressage and show jumping and he was in, in, in the lead. He got a 25 in the dressage. So that was very wow. nice. And then I have a, a young thoroughbred 
And some of these I own in partnership uh, in a syndicate that I have with Olivia Dutton, Philip's daughter. Mm -hmm. And so Olivia and I share some of these horses, so we both might ride them and compete them. And uh, we kind of help each other and so forth. So we have several additional horses in the syndicate that are strictly for Olivia. And then we have three of them that three aforementioned that Mm -hmm. are for me. And so I ride and educate them. And then if I maybe have a week where I'm unable to do that for work reasons, whatever, Olivia might ride and compete them. And so that horse is by Union Rags, the Belmont Stakes winner. Uh uh, That was trained by Michael Matz and uh, owned by Phyllis Wyeth. And uh, who also was a a remarkable woman who unfortunately has passed now. But uh, she had that horse in training with Michael. He won, ended up winning the Belmont Stakes, and mm-hmm. he sired a number of horses. And Philip has a promising young horse. It's only uh, just done a couple of two stars now, success, successfully, and has won uh, a lot of events. His name is Lincoln's Address. He's also by Union Rags. So oh, wow. this horse has 50% of the same sire, so 50% of the same blood uh, is a bay horse. Yeah. And his name is Undaunted Rags. And he has a very good mind. Um, I've actually won a sanctioned event with him already wow. um, as a four-year-old, and wow. he is here in Florida being educated. And so we have uh, hopes that he will he will make a nice horse at some level in the sport. Um, you know, for for me or Olivia or somebody. That's what an incredible relationship um, you have with, with the Duttons. It's so <laughs> like fantastic. I, say, I, I, I always say, I just uh, you know, it's if you, I, I have a a very, very strong feeling that you can make a lot of things work out for yourself if you are strong-willed enough and desire for it to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a lot of what I've been able to, uh, you know, achieve is because I wanted it so, so badly that I essentially made it work out. Now, there is a negative to you know, a little bit of what I'm doing and, and people say to me all the time, how can you be a vet and be this busy and still mm-hmm. ride a yeah. couple of horses a day and compete? And I do tell them I'm somewhat, you know, uh, I, I'm joking a little bit, but it's, it's truthful. I say it really is at the expense of other normalcies in my life. Yeah. And, and that is really true. I was a very avid long distance runner for about 30 years. I really was loved long distance running and competed in many competitions and so forth. Uh, even after I'd moved to Pennsylvania in 1982 from the Midwest and I was really into it. Then once I got into the riding, you know, uh, encouraged by Philip and so forth, I, I had to give something up because there's only so much time and day. I continued to work the same hours as a vet. So what happened was I, I basically replaced my long distance running with riding. Mm-hmm. And of course I would only ride one horse a day. And then, it became apparent to me that people that were riding a lot more horses each day were getting better. And obviously, if you ride four a day, you have four times uh, yeah. the experience of someone riding one a day. Yeah. So that's when I realized that the the acquisition of more horses and, and doing as many as I could in a day would help educate my my body and my mind to understand riding better and you know things like you know throughness, connection, and you know all the challenges that we have as as amateur riders. Mm-hmm. I tell people a lot that, you know, one of the differences between amateur riders and the professionals, you know, the professionals obviously have, you know, you know, most of them have this, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary talent. But one thing is an amateur that is challenging is you just don't get to ride that much. This yeah. is one of the problems. Most of us have another job. You don't 
get to have that many hours in the saddle. And so your education is slower. So my thought was, well, ride as much as you can. So what I did was I started cutting hours off of other parts of my life, you know, things like sleep, things like this. (laughs) And I actually am pretty well known for that. I, I do not sleep much and I'm able to essentially go on very little sleep for a very long period of time. So that's what I started doing. I'd get up earlier in the morning, get a horse ridden, stay out late at night and get another horse ridden and, you know, uh, do that. So you have to sacrifice something that -hmm. you might want to do to have the time with your horses. But in the end, it was what I wanted the most. And so it was, is, it was rewarding as, as anything to, you know, give up my long distance running and spend the time with the horses. And now I'm, I'm really hooked, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm very, I'm very entrenched in this whole, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, learning and show jumping and you know getting my dressage as good as I can. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I'm down here in Florida. I'm really enjoying this show jumping. It's really great to get in the ring a few times a week, you know, because I have, I have several horses here that I can take to the horse shows, and so that has really, uh, really helped me, you know, get some mileage in the ring. Wow, the the dedication is incredible. <laughs> well, I you know you don't really know anybody who's successful in their chosen profession without being dedicated. Yeah. So I think that I think that goes with it. I think that if you want to succeed, you have to do it that way. I have a lot of friends that are amateur riders, and uh, you know, no no criticism intended, but I can tell they're going to be limited in the level they're going to achieve because you you know there there are no shortcuts. You know, yeah. in, in this in this sport, and uh, it, you know, I am lucky that I've been around some of the best riders in the world for so much of my professional life. You know, having been involved in um, international show jumping as a veterinarian for mm-hmm. many years before I met Philip, and you know, these top riders, this is this is what they do. You know, they 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 just uh, you know they, they they live and breathe their yeah. horses, and you know, you know, notwithstanding they're they're just enormous talent, but. Uh, you know, they, they give everything to it. And so I, as I said earlier, I, I just copied what other people were doing that were successful. Yeah. And so that, that's how I, I went on. And so what does your training look like? Do, do you have like a lesson once a week or more than once a week? What does that look like for you? Yes. So, um, you know, good question. I have a, a very definite feeling about how to improve and so forth. Many people like every time someone you know, as a clinic, they want to be there having the clinic. For me, that didn't work that well because it often involved being in, in, an, in another town, another state, yeah. uh, a lot of travel and so forth. Mm-hmm. So my thought was immerse yourself in a program that you see to be successful and put your faith in that person that is your trainer and stick with them. And that is what I did with Philip. Mm-hmm. And it is obviously, you know, my theory is is has been proven to, to work you know philip is uh fortunately for all of us he's extremely generous with his time and his knowledge and so he i have multiple lessons a week now they might be different types of lessons and what what it is this uh, syndicate that i have with 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 uh, philip and his his daughter mm-hmm. um basically he directs their training and so what we have is we have a log book that every day you, when you arrive at the barn, you, or you can do it the night before because he, he does the book the night before, you look in the log book and what you're going to do the next day. So yesterday when I got to the barn, uh, he had down that I was going to 
uh, do jumping exercises with two horses. Mm-hmm. So I was taught on two horses, uh, and it was all about how to prepare them for jumping. It's not just, you know, go warm up and I'll see you out there and we jump some jumps. It isn't like that. So it's all about the preparation of how to make sure that your horse is properly in front of your leg connected that the horses can go forward, that you can add to a fence, that you can basically gallop a fence like a cross-country cell. And you have to be prepared for all of that when your lesson begins. And so that's what my lessons were about yesterday. Now, uh, Philip had to leave town for a couple days to go give a clinic, and so he'll return in, you know where I am in Florida now. Mm-hmm. He'll come back to Florida, and I'll probably have another lesson with him on Thursday on a couple of horses. So I have multiple lessons a week, and the lessons don't need to be a predetermined period of time. Like it's going to be an hour lesson, or you're going to have a short session, half an hour. Right. What you do with Philip, he has a plan in his head, mm-hmm. and Philip is very, very smart about how to train you based on what your level of education is at the time and what your horse's level of education is at the time. He's really good at knowing how to put the two of them together. So I have this young thoroughbred. You know, we might do very different exercises than we do with sports field candy that has been going advanced for five years, you know. So it's based on that horse's uh, current level of knowledge and education. And everything with Philip is about seeing if you could do it more with your balance and your seat and your leg than your hand. You know, he right. wants you to always have a quiet hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, th- this is a lot of what the lessons are about. You know, I've heard him say, you know, dozens of times over the years, he said, always see if you can use a little bit less hand. He says that to everybody, you know, so that you're, you know, you're basically have a sympathetic hand with the horse and see if you can direct the horse with your leg. You know, really, which is what, dressage is about you know yeah. we are a hand oriented society mm-hmm. and so people want to use their hand but you know you watch these top dressage riders and you know they have you watch these horses and these cdis you know they, the riders have these beautiful quiet hands that aren't doing anything or uh, apparently not to the eye and you know they're they're controlling the horse with aids from their seats and their legs which gives it great visual beauty and also an incredible way to communicate with the horse as that's what the lessons are like and do you do you um, ride with Olivia at all? Oh yes, so <laughs> that's uh, so fun. So we are, uh, you know, a very tight group. The, the group that's with Philip, which would be, you know, uh, Philip and Evie Dutton um, mm-hmm. uh, own the business, and then their daughter Olivia is, is you know, uh, she is very talented, and then mm-hmm. she also very. You know, it's it's very clear that she wants to go on as a horse professional, and so we are all at the same farm together, and there's a number of I don't want to use the term working students. I can say they're just, you know, they work uh, for um, Philip Dutton Eventing and they are part of the team. We all get along fantastically. You know, it's a whole team. Everybody helps everybody else. Nobody leaves without checking with everybody at the end of the day, which right. might be 5.30, it might be 6.15 at night. We don't work, extru- you know, we don't work into the dark. Philip is very organized and wants everyone to be done at a reasonable hour. So everybody checks with everybody else to see, is there anything that needs to be done? Did mm-hmm. this horse have... You know, you know, hoof dressing applied to their feet. Every horse gets groomed every day by a by a rider or groom. They're put on cross sizing, groomed after their um, work and bath that day. Mm-hmm. And so it's communication amongst the group. And so, you know, that's how we all are together. So, for example, today I rode three horses today. 
And while I was riding, Olivia would be on some of her horses. She might have been in the same arena as me. She might have been, we have a large grass, uh, like a, a jumping area, you know, like a big yeah. Grand Prix field. And, uh, you know, we're not jumping Grand Prix size jumps, but it's like a Grand Prix field that you would see in a, in a, um, in a jumper uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd be out there together and, you know, you might chat for a minute while you're, while you're, have your horse hacking. And then, you know, when you're working, you're concentrating and you're, yeah. you're not chatting with anybody. And so, yeah. yes, I, I, I ride at the farm every day with Olivia and, uh, Philip Souther. He has hired riders, uh, a young man who is uh, very talented that's here riding for Philip right now and, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, young girls that are, you know, coming up through the levels with him, um, that have, you know, actually won CCI. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a really nice group of people that, uh, works collectively to get all the work done properly every day. And I want to go back to, uh, your competing a little bit now. What is, uh, on the radar for you? I know you said you're down in Wellington right now and you're doing some show jumping stuff, but what's next for, uh, eventing? Yeah. So, uh, I was asked this uh, recently, and everything I have asked this sports field candy to do, he has ticked the box off. I think I've done about I think I've done about eighteen four stars with him. Um, if I'd add them up over you know several years, I yeah. kind of two two in the spring, three in the fall, and you know I've had him for. I probably was going advanced about a year after I had him, so you know that kind of you know gets up in that close to twenty range. So I think I've done about eighteen with him, and. Uh, you know, a number of top 10 finishes and second and a three-star and then the, the win and trying at the two-star um, mm-hmm. championship there last fall. So he's done everything I've asked him to. So currently, he's 16 years old, by the way. Uh, I don't want to wait until I can feel his body is struggling to do it. I right. want to, I want to give him his exit from the discipline at a time when he still has a, a, a his body's in great shape still right. so i'm just going to show jump him throughout this winter and spring and then see what i'm going to do that's so that's he's my top tier horse right now and then i have a number of young horses coming up you know a couple that olivia's riding a couple that i'm riding up this girl that i mentioned on daunting rags yeah. and the one that has done the, been i bought him from a show jumping bar but he'd make a wonderful event horse he's beautiful he moves beautifully and he is a phenomenal jumper and so I'll probably start them at the lower tiers and work them up and educate them the way I have the others. And usually what happens, you can have plans for a horse, but in the end, the horse more or less lets you know what they're going to do and what they're comfortable doing. And so yeah. I do a lot of what I do with my horses, not as much by a graph and a book, but by feel. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to get going with them. And after you, do a number of events at one level, you kind of get the sense, okay, they're ready to go to the next level. And so I, I tremendously enjoy finding and then educating young horses. It's one of the biggest enjoyments I get. And because I've kind of ticked off the boxes I have wanted to over, you know, the last, you know, 15 years or so, mm-hmm. I, I feel I have this great kind of clean slate in front of me that I can more or less do what I want with yeah, them. That's great. And so I'm going to do a lot of show jumping with candy and they have a wonderful division down here in Wellington. It's called the Masters. It's basically for us old folks, to be honest, <laughs> to be honest with you, which is kind of fun. And they're very generous with the showgrounds. They have the International Ring, which is where they have the four- and five-star Grand Prix on uh-huh. a Saturday night. And they let the Masters class go in the Internet. as the International Ring. They let the Masters go in there on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings mm-hmm. every weekend, pretty much. And it's just a real thrill to get in that 
huge rink. Oh, yeah. Now, we do it earlier in the morning, so they, they don't have the, you know, tens of thousands of people in the stand that they do for the Grand Prix. And, you know, we're not anywhere near as fun to watch as, you know, McLean Ward going around on a five-star <laughs> horse. But basically... But even uh, getting into that ring. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a really great thrill to get in that ring and, yeah. and, you know, feel that, you know, kind of excitement of the international arena. So I've been doing that this winter, and I enjoy it. And there are... A lot of divisions they have for amateur riders in show jumping, you know, in eventing, as you know, there are no amateur divisions. Yes. I tell people all the time that they don't have amateur divisions. Everybody yeah. rides together. If you're a, a Rolex winner, like like Philip, you know, if you're a, a, a Fair Hill winner, like Boyd, we're in the same division as them. There's uh-huh. no divisions for people that are amateurs. And so I actually really like that because if you prevail and win, you have really accomplished something. And so I like that they don't, you know, have it more or less simplified down just because you're an amateur. The sport is still the same. It is an international discipline. And then in show jumping, because there's such a larger number of people, they do have these amateur divisions, which I've been riding and really do enjoy. And some of these amateur riders, um, I, I, I'll see them in the warmth and I say, oh, I think you're an imposter. I'm teasing them, I say, because you're awfully good. You, know, you should be a professional. So they have some extremely good amateur riders in show jumping. And so these are divisions I'm currently competing in. I'm enjoying it. So I'm going to do that for a bit and then probably jump back and forth, educating these young horses, doing some events and trying to uh, always look for that next top prospect that I think I could acquire and uh, get educated a bit and then you know maybe share it with olivia if that's a horse that suits her that's awesome and you you touched on this a little bit before about nerves and i think you said you get a little bit of butterflies when you're in the warm-up oh boy. Oh, yes, <laughs> um, so how do you handle your nerves so they're visible on most people uh, and in i remember uh talking steve bradley won the burley horse trials and horse called sassy reason you know quite some years ago mm-hmm. uh, you know, when kind of he was in the middle of his career i'll say and i then saw him i didn't know steve very well at the time but he then was at you know just a little local horse trial in the novice division after he had won burley and i remember seeing him there i said you know steve this must be a very peculiar feeling to you that you're here riding a horse in the novice after you've just won Burley in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. And he said, oh, no, oh, no. It all depends what you're sitting on. And every time you leave that start box, it's a new experience. And he says, if you are not nervous, there's something wrong with yeah. you. And I, I never forget that. So here is a, a guy, he had won Burley, and he is telling me that if you don't feel nervous when you go to the start box, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and I think the great thing about nerves, so I don't try to – uh suppress them past what i think is the normal feeling you know it's a it's a discipline where quick thinking mm-hmm. uh good balance and making decisions very quickly about your horse and mm-hmm. you are vital to you having a successful trip around the cross country so what i try to do is you know hopefully not appear to have you know a sweaty sweaty uh you know uh forehead and palms and so forth but basically i try to concentrate the whole time that I'm in the, and I don't have a problem concentrating at all. I concentrate the whole time I'm in the warm-up. And the minute I walk down to that start box and go into that start box, it absolutely leaves me. And I am mm. just 
could not be more crystal clear about what I want to do with my horse from the moment that first gallop step out of the box. And most of my friends, you know, having talked to Boyd about this, he said it's actually the same for him. And even Philip, who is kind of like the king of cool, you know, <laughs> he, he always has that poker face on. Yeah. He said even he feels nervous. You, you have to feel nervous when you go into that start box because you're about to start a very daunting ride that might be six minutes, but, you know, as you do the CCIs, it might be, 10 and a half minutes and yeah. it's just it, it's just an enormous thrill the sport and you know people who you know haven't tried it but have the opportunity i i certainly uh i think that you'll you know that rewarding feeling when you cross that finish line successfully mm -hmm. is just tremendous it is a highs and lows sport i tell people Absolutely. all the time as many yeah. sports are you you Recall, you know, a number of these uh, Olympic Games going back for, you know, 20, 30 years, they used, used, you know, the wide world of sports used to have that, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And that was their motto is they would, you know, show somebody maybe, uh, you know, going down the slalom doing one thing and then somebody, you know, on the hill having a fall and sliding down the mountain. Yeah. And basically that is what eventing is like you know it's the it's the thrill of victory when you're successful and the agony of defeat your horse having a stop or you know um you know you know maybe you know trip, tripping uh in, in the water stumbling mm -hmm. when they jump in or something like this you know these are uh these are moments you never forget they're agonizing and when you have gone to an event that's far from home that drive home is very long yeah. when you have not had a successful <laughs> cross country you know and so uh, I have no trouble concentrating, and so I, 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 the nerves, the nervous part leaves me immediately as soon as I leave that start box, and so um, that's been, that's been absolutely fine. I don't know if that's natural for everybody. Boyd said it's the same for him, so I, I think it probably goes with the territory. And just one more question to wrap up here. Um, you know, you've been doing this not only as a rider but as a vet for so many years. What is it that has kept you involved for so long? What anchors you to everything? As, as far as in, in the sport of eventing? Um, horses in general, really. Yeah, okay. I mean, so, uh, all right, that's good. So, you know, my now just the desire to ride and be successful as a rider and to try to achieve the you know, the best uh, success and level I can with my horses. And then my, you know, they're married to each and my job, they're married to each other. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm with, I'm with, I'm with horses all day, every day. And I can't imagine not being around horses. I just mm -hmm. am so entrenched in the desire to do something with them all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think the real answer to your question, Julia, is, I tell people this all the time about dressage, and it's the same in veterinary medicine. It's the same as probably riding in any discipline, I would think. Uh, you know, I've not ridden at that kind of level in show jumping and, and, and dressage. These, you know, people that are riding in, uh, you know, uh, I-1 and 2 and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, pre-sanger, you know, yeah. that's not the level where I ride in dressage. It's different in eventing or, mm -hmm. you know, in the show jumping doing, you know, the meter 40s and up. Uh, but basically, I think it's because I'm always trying to achieve perfection, and I don't think I've ever really gotten there. So it makes me, I have that burning desire to mm -hmm. keep going, to try to always be better and more perfect. So there's always another tier to try to reach. Yeah. And I think that that's really the answer that I have for you, is that what keeps me going? I always want to do my ultimate best in every case I have as a veterinarian and give 100% and 
my clients know that I would ne- I will never give up on a case, and they will have my full and undivided attention to try to be successful in diagnosing and managing their course to the best of my ability and my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Same in writing. I every day want to get better and achieve a more highly schooled uh, level of my my uh, position on the horse, my leg and seat position, my hand, my back, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm moderately old to be doing this sport <laughs> at, at a high level. It's, it's unusual, actually. And uh, so I'm trying to always be aware of my posture on the horse to not letting my uh, age get in the way of me, you know, ha- having a straighter back. And I, I, Philip is very big on taking videos of us while we're in the ring and showing mm. us what we look like. And that's been a really big help. Because, oh, yeah. wow, I, I need to sit up a little bit better. Or, uh, my shoulders are a bit rounded or something like this. So I'm always trying to achieve a higher level of perfection. And so that's where I go every time I get on my horse. I had this phenomenal lesson with Philip yesterday where, and I'm going back to the, you know, everything has to come from your leg and your seat. Mm-hmm. I had to ride my horse at different forward levels in the walk, in the trot, and the canter without using my reins. Mm. I, could, I could hold the reins on the buckle, but I was not allowed to touch the horse's mouth. I would have to go forward and back. And you have to go forward from your leg. This isn't too hard. But then to slow the horse yeah. without using your hands. And I had to do this. At, first, he had me in walk, then in trot, mm-hmm. and to the left and to the right, then in canter. And it's really fantastic. So... He's away today. So I practiced all of that, and I did it on more than one horse. I said, okay, I can do this on more than one horse. So the horse learns to get your aids and that you're going to communicate with him largely through your seat and your legs, yeah. you know, with less hand. And so this is something I could say, I need to do this every day for a couple of years. So that's that's what keeps me glued to the, the, the sport in my profession is always trying to be better than I was the year before, the day before, mm-hmm. and, you know, the moment before. Well, this has just been the most interesting and lovely conversation, Kevin. I really, <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Well, absolutely. It's my pleasure, and I, I'm always happy to be interviewed, and I feel uh, fortunate that I, I, I am asked for it. It's a, I think what, what has happened is... Uh, and I don't mean this in any kind of a way where um, anyone's getting a pat on the back here, uh, really, except my my incredible horses and my mm-hmm. training program and, and, and with the, uh, with the, the Dutton group. But I think that I've probably been a little bit of a role model for other amateurs to say, I'm yeah. sure they look and say, you know, this guy's this guy's getting up there. You know, I mean, I'm I'm pretty close to seventy years old. You know, and um, I'm turning sixty nine. So basically they realize that it is attainable. Mm-hmm. And this is this is one of the messages or the gift I've been able to give the amateur community in our discipline. I'm just couldn't be happier because, and I've told so many people, if you want it badly enough, it is absolutely possible. You absolutely can, can ride at Kentucky. You just, you're gonna have to give some things up. Yeah. And it is possible. And even if you don't have, you think you have enough money, you can still make it happen. You have to, you have to know how to make the lifestyle of riding at a high level work for your lifestyle with your day job. And I think that a lot of people have looked at this and realized that this is possible for them too. And so I'm hoping that that is the case. 
And I'm, I'm positive. I've told so many people, just given them a pat on the back and said, I am positive that if you want this, that you can make it happen for you. And if you get a chance to ride at a five star, you get a chance to ride at Kentucky, it will be a week that you will relive over and over and over again, uh, just with um, incredible, you know, uh, feeling of, I think the feeling of accomplishment is the most incredible thing that I took away from that, you know, so that incredible horse I had. Speaking for myself, I'm an amateur and just hearing you talk about your dedication and everything that you've done to make you know your profession and your love of the sport work for you it is very inspiring to hear so i'm sure i'm sure that it will reach our listeners as well well that, that's great and I, you know i actually could go on and i can remember i was uh um as a young veterinarian i had the pleasure of being able to work for many top show jumping stables and i've taken a number of clinics from of top riders, you know, uh, Joe Fargis and uh, George Morris and so forth. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget George saying in a clinic, he says, don't do what's easy when you're riding your horse. Do what's hard for you. Yeah. And little things like that have resonated with me, and I've kept them in my head. And this is what I do. You know, if it's a little bit harder for me to do something, I do it more when I ride. Yeah. It's easy to do what's easy for you. Uh-huh. And if you keep doing that, you don't really progress. So I've kept that as a little bit of my work model. And so, you know, that's just one thing I can think of right now. And this is what you have to do. If you're going to make it too easy for yourself, you know, you might end up with some limitations. But if you do what's hard to do and discipline yourself and make yourself do it, you know, you can you, you can you can be successful. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Kevin Keane, and a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Practical Horseman On Demand. Learn more at practicalhorsemanondemand.com. You can subscribe to the Practical Horseman podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Also, tune into our mini-sode series, The Fod Pod, where you'll hear audio lessons from our favorite Practical Horseman on-demand clips. When you tune into the FOD pod, listen closely for a promo code for 15% off your Practical Horseman on-demand subscription. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. I'm Julia Murphy, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman podcast.